Hi, this is Karin Zessis of ASCOA Online. Ten years ago, on March 5, 2013, the death of Hugo Chavez was announced in Venezuela. A las 4:25 de la tarde de hoy, 5 de marzo, ha fallecido el comandante presidente Hugo Chavez. Mourners took to the streets at the end of a long presidency marked by nationalizations, democratic erosion, as well as record high oil prices and heavy borrowing that had given the famously loquacious leader the ability to freely spend on popularity-boosting social programs. Que no haya fraquezas, que no haya violencia, que no haya odio en nuestro corazón que anide el único sentimiento que tuvo el comandante Chávez. Amor, amor por la vida, por la historia, por la patria. That was Nicolás Maduro, at that time vice president, sharing the news of Chávez's death on national television. He's governed Venezuela ever since, but the decade-long story of his government has been dominated by the crash that followed the Chávez-era boom. With oil prices falling, Venezuela slipped into economic crisis. Hyperinflation led to shortages of basic food and medical supplies. And for years, the country's economy shrank, contracting 75% between 2013 and 2021, the most for a country not at war in the last 50 years. Amid the dire economic situation and escalating violence, over 7 million Venezuelans fled the country since 2015. But changes are afoot. The White House has been engaging directly with the Maduro government, even if it still doesn't recognize it. And Juan Guaido, who gained recognition as president from dozens of foreign governments in 2019, had been pushed out of that role by the beginning of 2023. So what's next for Venezuela as Maduro reaches 10 years in power? In this episode, we hear from two experts who've been watching this story closely for years. Fabiola Zetba is a Venezuelan journalist for Bloomberg News, covering the country's politics and economy. Javier Corrales is a political scientist who's been researching Venezuela's democratic backsliding since 2010. My colleague, Guillermo Zubiaga, head of the ASCOA Venezuela Working Group, sits down with both of them to explore the past and future of the Maduro regime. You're listening to Latin America in Focus. Latino America in Foco. America Latina in Foco. A podcast by America Society, Council of the Americas on politics, economics, and culture in the region. There's totally a science of why we chose the two of you. Fabiola, you're based in Caracas, and Javier, you've studied the regime of Chavez and Maduro so closely and have given a lot of concepts and names to what we have seen and what we have many survived. So I want to start the story with the death of Hugo Chavez. According to official reports, which were already not trusted by many, 
Chavez died in Havana to cancer on March 5th, exactly 10 years ago. So Fabiola, you as a reporter in Caracas were, of course, following this story closely. It was, you know, at that moment, Chavez was president that rule over the country. He took every major decision. You couldn't think of a successor of Chavez. And yet Nicolas Maduro, who was then his foreign minister, assumed power. Can you tell us a little bit about this transition and this moment? 2012, when Chavez fell ill, you know, had to go through some operations, surgeries, the future without him wasn't something that was debated in public. This was something that wasn't spoken or in the public media. Expectations were very high. There was so little information about Chavez's illness. When Chavez died, there was a very close circle of people around him. One of them was Maduro. And the one who announced that Chavez died was Maduro. So this was unforeseen for everybody, very, you know, surprising. And Javier, can I just ask you to quickly set our listeners of what the Chavez presidency looked like? Give us a little bit about the power structures. So Hugo Chavez took over a democracy that was experiencing a number of crises, but was nonetheless still a democracy. And by the time he died, he transformed the regime into a regime that had concentrated so much power in the executive branch. Essentially, Chavez eliminated all forms of checks and balances. This became a regime where all the branches of governments were subservient to the executive branch and the ruling party captured a good number of organizations in civil society. There were some democratic spaces still left, but the system had been moving steadily in the direction of a more politically closed system over time. That was at the level of politics. At the level of economics, what we see is, under Chavez, an incredibly rapid expansion of state control over the economy, of the kind that we had not seen since the Cold War, since communist regimes, levels of nationalizations and over-regulation of the private sector that really the Latin America had never seen, really, I would say, since the height of import substitution industrialization. But yet after his death, an election is announced, right, Fabiola? Maduro comes to power, as Javier says, in a structure that was built by Chavez, a framework of socialism in a legal framework, a new constitution, a way of the citizen relating to the, to the state, very dependent on right. AIDS, controls of food, prices, fuel, currency, and also control on the electoral system. As I was a reporter, we could verify that in those very far away states from Caracas, well, people went to vote and they were not told who to vote for, but were assisted. And uh, this was all in elections before Maduro came to power. This was part of the, of the system. So, Javier, this is kind of like the root of the problem in a way, right? We have a, an irregular election won by the party in control, and yet the international community doesn't say much. Help us understand how this kind of irregular elections are able to take place and shape the country. You're absolutely right. I think the international community, if that term makes any sense at all, 
right. has a significant degree of tolerance for a significant degree of irregularities. They will issue reports if they are allowed to observe and they write incredibly authoritative reports and they follow absolutely impeccable methodologies. But it takes a lot of irregularities for the international community to say the election was fully fraudulent. And this gives governments that are committing those irregularities enormous latitude of action. And this is what we saw with Chavez and and it continued under Maduro because I have been able to document that the irregularities accelerated under Maduro. At least uh, this is the experience in Venezuela. The denunciations are made, right. but they don't seem to be enough to compel a government to say, oh, you know what, let's do this again. Or, right, let's, right, try right. To get, or let's try to reform the system for the best. So Maduro gets elected in an irregular election. And then at the same time, Fabiola, and this is what I want to bring you in with your amazing reporting, we're seeing that structure that Javier talked on the economic sense starting to collapse. What do I mean by that? The price of oil, right, starts to fall. Can you paint a picture of that beginning of the collapse? Well, soon in 2013, Maduro has to, in one hand, he inherits the legacy of Chavez and the effects of the legacy and the effects of the controls. Also, expropriations in industrial areas also having an effect on the economy. And at the same time, he has to empower himself and differentiate himself from hardliners, Chavistas, very close to Chavez, AIDS, and the military, because he's not a military man. And then soon after that, in 2014, and in 2017, we have the huge protests, huge right. protests in Caracas nationwide. What would you say, Fabiola, was the main driver of people going out to protest? Was it economics or was it a political liberties? Well, we have reported in Bloomberg, it was essentially the economic and the effects of the controls and the scarcity. And the scarcity. People, you know, the exodus had already started by that time. Mm-hmm. That exodus, I mean, and Javier jump in here, but this is one of the defining figures of this 10-year rule is that you have seen an exodus that is now over 7 million people, one of the largest ones in the world. Fabiola, remind us a little bit what year did that exodus really started to take hold? 2017, it was already 4 million. But okay. at that time, 2014, what people took on the streets uh, to protest hard against scarcity, against violations of human rights. People were very angry, you know, bagging pots. And I remember this quite vividly because Usually, protest is held in middle-class areas, but this was a time when it was all across the socioeconomic stratus, and you could hear, um, you know, people banging pots and throwing Molotovs in in the east and the west, clashing with the police and the military. And the, the one thing that was new then was that before, when Chavez was in power, protest was driven by politics, but okay. not by economic, uh, any right. economic reason. But after 2014, when scarcity began to blend in and people had to take the decision to move out of Venezuela to look for a new life outside, and now they were willing to you know, protest for their economic rights. 
Esa es la revolución que quería Chávez. La revolución de Maduro. Lo tienen pasando hambre. So that's a difference between yeah, those uh, two governments or moments. Right. And yeah, Javier, I want to bring you in, in here because that is when we start to see a personality of the Maduro regime that is now something that has become a defining label that is a systematically repressive administrations that saw for the first time poor segments of the country really protesting. You're absolutely right that the period going from around 2016 up until 2018 was a period in which the administration felt incredibly cornered. I would even say felt an existential crisis. And this is a regime that was not used to this. And as Fabiola was saying, it was cross-class and it was very difficult to contain. So the regime reacted uh, by essentially ending democracy by becoming incredibly repressive in a number of traditional as well as innovative ways. Traditional things like arresting people, killing people, torturing them, but then doing innovative things such as using colectivos, what seemed like civilians, to do the repression. They also began to use the legal system to disarm the institutions that were still under the control of non-ruling party organizations, including the Congress. I just want to remind the listener that in 2015, an opposition coalition took a majority of Venezuela's National Assembly, right? And that's the institution that you're saying that Maduro went after. With all the rules stacked against the opposition, the opposition was able to really achieve a landslide and gain control of the National Assembly. So going back to your question, Guillermo, the regime responded by using the very same autocratic tools that Chavez had already begun to amass and creating new ones. And so we see a form of repression in Venezuela that I think is only going to get matched in Nicaragua almost wow. right around the same time, with brutality deployed. Not just against the opposition, by the way. This is important to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. Also against people within the ruling coalition. There is plenty of evidence of members of the military who were discovered to have questionable loyalties right. and being sent to prison and persecuted and disappeared. Right. So right now, if I can kind of like situate where we are, we're around 2017, right, Fabiola? We're seeing hyperinflation or a lot of inflation. We went from, I remember, you know, having these large crowds all over the city, et cetera. And then through an amazing repression, outrageous repression, it kind of subdued. So can you tell us a little bit about, Fabiola, those moments from we went from like a protest to a quietness that was shocking for many outside this was a buildup of protest that went through 2014, 15, 17, when teenagers died. Many of yes. them died in the streets. So we have this happening on the political side. You have the confrontation in the streets. It's very hard to do things and working when you have barricades in the streets. Also because of lack of investment for previous years. You know, we're starting to have lack of electricity, water services. So you have a crackdown on the descent and yeah. on the infrastructure of services. 
And then in 2017, leading to 2018, inflation starts to go up and higher and higher and higher. Venezuela, of course, a country where prices double every few weeks and a monthly salary isn't enough to buy meat for one family meal. That's why so the government... So I think not- the, the economic troubles for the Venezuelans was a way also to halt dissent in the sense that people once in the streets previously, having taken their time to go and protest for something, now we're confronted to the situation that it's either you work and make some money to bring some food onto your table, or right. you, you can't have the peace of mind to go and fight for your political right. rights. So right. this silenced some protests. Then we have the election that Maduro runs, right? So Javier, you have this setting where Fabiola is describing, and Maduro runs again there is an election against a rival henry falcon a lot of the main opposition decides not to run in this presidential election in 2018 so can you tell us a little bit about this election and how it's different to me this is a breaking point where maduro no longer is seen as the legitimate president of venezuela Yes. So the elections are incredibly irregular. Opposition figures are getting arrested. There are significant uh, restrictions on what the opposition can do, how much they can campaign. The ruling party spending all the money and denying every type of opportunities for anybody in the opposition to campaign. There were, after the elections, reports of irregularities that were not audited, that were not taken into consideration. And so this really couldn't have counted as anywhere near free and fair, very, very far away. No election is 100% free and fair, but this was a, a very low level. But what happened here, here's what's so remarkable. This is a moment in which the opposition goes back to a strategy that had abandoned, which is it splits on the question of whether to participate in the elections or not. So one group decides to participate, and this is the group that goes with Henry Falcón, and his vice presidential candidate, Francisco Rodriguez. But a good number of the opposition decides not to go and vote. And this weakens the opposition. And This is going to be a strategy that Maduro is going to keep using from this point on, which is under Chavez, and in so many ways still under the first part of Maduro, the government was attacking the opposition fully, And this was prompting the opposition to get somewhat united. It was incentivizing it. But from now on, Maduro is going to discover that it pays to try to split the opposition. This is important to mention because we have the feeling that the rise of autocrats automatically unites the opposition. But the more typical equilibrium is the opposite. The opposition is going to disagree about What do we do with these incredibly unfair rules? Do we participate or do we reject them? Do we go moderate or do we go extreme? It's very difficult for the opposition to regain unity. And this probably is the central dilemma that the opposition has faced since this election in 2018. The opposition is going to reunite again under the Guaido leadership, but this was not an electoral coalition. This was a coalition behind the Guaido position, which was to not recognize Maduro as president.
Celebra en redes sociales, le digo, los vamos a enfrentar. From this year on, it seems like, like the economy, the hurtful situation of the Venezuelans and the Chavez legacies of socialism and controls, it takes a toll on Venezuelans and hyperinflation comes and enters in all households and the leader of the National Assembly is Guaidó and Guaidó comes to be president entering 2019 and immediately you have the second round of U.S. sanctions. These are the most hurtful for Venezuela because those are the oil sanctions. And Fabiola, just to remind uh, listeners, basically Venezuela sold most of its oil to the U.S. And then this, what this sanction does is saying we can no longer buy that Venezuelan oil, correct? Only U.S. companies or U.S. citizens cannot enter in deals with PDVSA or buy oil, etc. Before this, we have to take into account that there were in place financial sanctions on PDVSA. PDVSA, since 2017, had a hard time using its banks around the world to collect money from its oil um, sales. So we have an economy that its main industry is sanctioned by the U.S. We have a leader that has basically doubled down and stayed in power. So in my opinion, we're seeing a frustration in politics. Maduro starts to do They try to correct some of the price controls. They de facto dollarize the economy. And you see in the population kind of like a sense like, you know what? You can't topple this guy. We got to live with him. Is there, is there a name for that in political scientists when people just give up in a way and understandably so? <laughs> Let me try to tell you what I don't think is the right description of what's going on here. This is not a regime that is engaging in economic opening. Even right. if there have been some forms of liberalization, what you're seeing here is what we could describe as muddling through. And the best definition of muddling through is making small adjustments so that everything stays the same. So I think perhaps the most important adjustments come in two areas. The first one has been a de facto recognition of dollarization, partial dollarization, allow for some establishments to conduct businesses in dollarization. And this has helped a little bit in those dollarized economies. As always happens, you get a little bit of a recovery. You've also seen a little bit of an opening with the government working with some private actors who are not necessarily Chavistas. So you see, for example, some type of economic deals. But the overall structure of the system, which is an economy that is heavily controlled by the state, both in terms of ownership of the largest pieces of the production sectors, as well as the regulatory environment, doesn't change. You also don't see a big change in the fact that it is now the military that plays the largest role in running both the public and some of the most important parts of the private sector. And you also don't see a big change in the third pillar of the economy, which is the over-reliance on illicit economic activities. So these key elements of the system are in place, and I don't see any signs of the upper echelons being interested in dismantling and moving away from it. So I think the best description is changing a few things here so that things stay the same. 
Got it. Fabiola. Uh, we have followed this through in some areas of the economy. And we see Madura has called these new um, business areas as alliances. And they started because Maduro faced with financial sanctions, a being able to move money right. around or collecting, yep. moving around. So he had to resort to the private area and to the private businessmen because they were the only ones he could rely on to build and to build something inside the economy in Venezuela. It's not a policy. It's like an attempt to do yeah. things and they start very good. But if you ask me, well, how are those alliances doing? Some of them have not survived right. and some of them are closed. The same thing in, in the oil area. As the majors, oil majors companies left the country and also right. oil services companies left. So Maduro was confronted to the reality that it had to rebuild what was left of the oil industry with the Venezuelan businessmen and Venezuelan right. contractors. So let's just jump to the present and the future. Ironically, even though you've described this not so free, not so clean elections, Everybody has a lot of hope on the 2024 election, not only the international community, which, you know, they have worked with the Norwegians to set up a political talks in Mexico City. Right now, those are frozen to talk about how to make elections cleaner. Every political opposition leader is trying to run in the primaries. There is basically no one saying, no, we cannot vote because nothing has changed. So I ask you, Javier. What has happened that we've had these 10 years of democratic backsliding and yet we still have hope that the best way out is a presidential election? Well, elections have a way of delivering huge surprises. We absolutely know that Maduro has incredibly low approval ratings. For him to win, he has to do far more irregularities. But I do think that the opposition in Venezuela and in many countries have been able to do well in elections, even under incredibly adverse circumstances. There's plenty of evidence of this. The game is stacked against you, but it's not hopeless. What happens in an electoral process, it's almost like political magic. This is the only opportunity that the leaders of the opposition have to connect to the voters. So when you decide that you're not going to run for an election, you are basically deciding to seek no connections. So the act of being in an election creates a process of campaigning, which can work. You know, if you're smart, if you do it, and given the disaffection that exists in Venezuela, this is not entirely hopeless, even if the rules are against you. And I think we're moving into an interesting chapter. I actually have, as pessimistic as I can be, I am far more optimistic about an electoral process in Venezuela than I am about the dialogues. Interesting. Uh, because of this mechanism that I have just described, this is the only way that the opposition has of having an incentive of connecting with ordinary folks. Thank you, Javier. Fabiola, go ahead. Time and time again, when polls are conducted, and results are not favoring opposition, the electoral voter, the Venezuelan electoral voter, wants to vote. Yes. Uh, it's embedded in the DNA of Venezuelans that democracy was born 
after you know a 10 year <laughs> dictatorship and, yep. and and the voting is like a fiesta a day of, of joy and to go outside and and speak your mind you know as javier points out elections motivate people in venezuelans yeah. So just to starting to wrap up, we also have an economy that is unsustainable, as you've said, Fabiola and Javier. There hasn't been no openings yet. We have a war in Ukraine that has made Venezuela very important because Venezuela has large, if not the largest, oil reserves, natural gas, etc. So my question to you guys is, will the international community just turn a blind eye to an irregular election yet again in 2024? Or do you see a motivation to really try to get this one right and give Venezuelans the conditions for a free and fair election? What can the international community do now to really try to make that election cleaner in 2024? That's a very important question. I think the, there needs to continue to exist pressure to force the government to have real observation. This is number one. Number two, let me just say that I don't think the European Union is that eager to get Venezuela off the hook precisely because of the war. They are a little bit less forgiving of Venezuela now simply because Venezuela continues to be a big ally of Russia. So it might even be harder to bring the Europeans on board if the Europeans don't see major improvements in the conduct of elections. The problem that we have is that I also don't think that there is appetite to tighten anything more. So right. this is the, the predicament. I don't think we are going to see any form of tightening, regardless of what happens politically. Yeah. Thank you, Javier. Fabiola, how are you seeing that you know, equation between the appetite for more gas, oil, inflation in Europe, etc.? and the lack of political movement in Venezuela towards a cleaner election. We have to see if economics also plays something on this because hyperinflation loomed a bit in December. We still have to wait and see what the oil industry, if it grows a little bit with Chevron involvement here, and right. if the European oil majors are going to get some licenses and help rebuild economically the oil industry. So we've run out of time, but I don't want to end this podcast without asking both of you in this 10 years, what lesson, what is the most important lesson that you've drawn personally? How have these 10 years informed you and what you think other people should be aware of? Javier, I'll start with you and then Fabiola. I say this uh, all the time that I can, despite all the mistakes that the opposition has made. The Venezuelan case, to me, is an example of a country where democratic forces refuse to die. And this has meant that autocracy hasn't really consolidated the way that it has consolidated in other regimes. So despite all this negativity that Fabiola and I have discussed, and we could go on, there is a story here of hope that is the resilience of democratic forces in Venezuela. Beautiful, Javier. Thank you so much. Fabiola, what about you? Yeah, well, I see this as another generation of Venezuelans. This is another generation that has to come over with ideas, be it in the opposition or being to continue Chavez's legacies or what it can be still applied that means growth to Venezuela. It's an opportunity 
for both camps or even a third camp to try to integrate the best of those worlds. My take from these 10 years is always look at the economics. It always right. is going to push something, the political situation around. That's a really important lesson. With that, I want to thank Fabiola and Javier for being in our podcast today, discussing what are not very easy topics to discuss, but I think that we can draw many lessons from your expertise and coverage that you give in these 10 years of Maduro in power in Venezuela. So thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Muy bien. Muchas gracias. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Karin Zissis. This episode was produced by our executive producer, Luisa Leme. The music in this podcast is performed by C4 Trio for America Society. Check the podcast notes for links to watch the full video and find out about upcoming concerts at musicoftheamericas.org. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can help us spread the word. Write us a review, give us five stars, or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Thank you.